Bibles, if you would please, and let's open them up to Philippians chapter 2. And the subject of my message tonight is uh, part number 2 of the message that I began last week. And this is about one of the most important doctrines that we find in the Word of God. And the title of the message is The Descent of the Son of God. And the subject is The Incarnation of Christ. And it seems as we're going through the study of Philippians that we're talking almost every week about some very important essential subjects. Paul's writings carry uh, such a weight of doctrine that it's impossible for us to say, well, he could have left this out in this place. He didn't really need to say this. And yet here in chapter 2 of Philippians, he brings up a cardinal truth of Scripture, a cardinal doctrine in support of what we would think is a far less important doctrine. And he's speaking about the encouragement of uh, unity in the faith and about humility, the type of humility that would cause us to love one another sacrificially. And in this argument, he needs, a, he needs an example. And the example that he gives is the example of Christ. And, and there's not a better example than him to give. And if this wasn't absolutely true what he has to say, and if all of this is not truly needed for a deeper understanding of the subject that it's at hand, we would accuse Paul of just using a gross amount of hyperbole here. We would say, well, he's going overboard to try to prove this point that he brings up. I mean, it's, it's almost like uh, explaining to a two-year-old that the sun is hot and then going into an explanation of nuclear physics. But this is really Paul's method because every doctrine of the Bible will somehow bring us back to the work that Christ did on the cross. It will bring us back to the fact of the incarnation of Christ because the only way that all of this becomes real to us and understandable to us, the only way that we can actually comprehend God is that Jesus Christ, God's Son, should become a man. And Jesus came to reveal the invisible God. So our best examples when we begin to talk about humility are not men and women. We can find examples of men and women who, who were uh, people of humility, but the best example is God because everything that God wants us to be is demonstrated experimentally and perfectly in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want us to read our text verses tonight and we'll start putting back into place uh, uh, the arguments here and the flow of the passage in just a moment. So let's look at this. If you'd stand with me, please. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to start at verse number 5. Philippians 2, verse number 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Heavenly Father, we thank you for each one who's come out tonight to hear your word. We're dealing with a very important subject, a very weighty subject, one that we need to know much more about. And Lord, uh, the blessing that we receive from knowing that Jesus became a man and came to this world to die for our sins, help us to really understand in a better way how Jesus humbled himself. And then, Lord, help us to use that example in our lives that we might be a humble people as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. He says in verse number 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. These verses that we've read in 
verses 6 through 8, are a demonstration of the mind of Christ, which corresponds to the principle that he gives us in verse number 2. There he says, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. To be like-minded with Christ is that we will not count the cost of giving ourselves for others too high a price for us to pay. Now, that's really the direction that Paul is taking us in in this argument. And he begins to show us how that Christ did not hold anything back when he became an offering for our sins. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about that aspect of it in just a moment. Uh, This teaching is really the very heart and the core of the passage But I want to remind you, first of all, uh, what we talked about last week and the first point that I made in the message. Last week, we talked about that Jesus is the essence of God. And the whole worth and whole force of Paul's argument centers on that teaching right there, that Jesus is God. The step from heaven to earth is not so great a step if we're talking about a created being. Angels are created beings, and of course, men are created beings. And so if you put an angel in heaven or you were to put man in heaven and then you were to bring either the angel or the man down to earth in the way that that Christ came, then that would not be such an imaginable step. But to think that God himself, who is the creator of all things, should put himself in the place of the creature and actually become like the creature, folks, that's really more than our minds can actually fathom. And yet that is exactly what Christ did. He's the agent, he's the architect of creation. By him all things were made. The scripture says by him all things consist. He is not like God, he is not similar to God. He doesn't have God-like qualities. He is, in fact, God. And the passage that we're reading tonight can only work in its full force. The argument only works if Jesus Christ is exactly that. He is God. I believe we fairly covered all of that last week as we discussed the pre-existence of Christ before creation. We also talked about the the co-eternality, co-equality of Jesus with the Father. But tonight we're going to move on just a little bit, and we're going to show how that Christ held nothing back in surrendering himself to the death of the cross. So number two tonight, we want to consider Jesus emptied himself to become man. Philippians 2 verse 6 says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now form, the form of God is the subject that we talked about last week. Form is the nature, that's the essence of God. And Paul goes on to say here that he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now that's somewhat of a confusing construction or confusing passage to us. But it means that Christ did not consider his position with God as something that he could never give up, something that would be too uh, costly a price to pay, something too expensive to give up, to come to this earth to redeem us from our sins. And the confusing part of this is, is that Christ could not give up his personal equality with God. Since he is the essence of God, he's the nature of God, he contains or has all of that, that's really not something that he could give up. Jesus Christ could never be anything less than God. But what Christ did do is that he gave up the position of equality. And so instead of staying in heaven, instead of remaining there in all the glories of heaven, he didn't think that the position that he had there must be defended at all costs so that Christ was unwilling to turn loose of that and to come to this earth. 
And so Paul begins to talk about the true humility of Christ. And, and this begins in verse number 7. He says, But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And the word made there in verse number 7 is the same word that I use for the heading of this point when I said Christ emptied himself. Because the word made there is the same word. It's emptied. And he did not empty himself of his deity. It's impossible for him to be less than God. Uh, He couldn't do that. But he did empty himself of his position when he stepped down from that throne in glory. Now, Christ's willingness to give up his position is demonstrated in at least five ways. And we're going to talk about these five different ways tonight. First of all, he endured subordination. And when I speak of subordination here, I'm speaking of his submissiveness, his subordination to the Father. And I don't use the word endured in the sense that he unhappily accepted that subordination. In fact, none of these five things that we're going to talk about tonight, Christ did unhappily. He was fully willing to do exactly what he did. And the Scripture says it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured. Now, sometimes when we talk about the Trinity we have in our minds that the Trinity has a ranking system. We talk about God the Father, and he's the first person of the Godhead. And we speak of God the Son, Jesus Christ, as being the second person, and then the Holy Spirit being the third person of the Godhead. And some people have in their minds that that's the ranking system. That God the Father is first, he's number one, he's the greatest. Uh, Jesus the Son is number two in that list, and then the Holy Spirit comes along as number three. And we get the idea that God's like a general, and the Son is like a colonel, and and, and the Holy Spirit's like a major. But that is totally the wrong idea, because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in power and authority. They're equal in omniscience, they're equal in omnipresence. And if that is a true statement, then the doctrine doctrine of the Trinity is absolutely indispensable. In fact, it is necessary that we have an indivisible trinity and that we do not have three separate gods because there's an impossibility of having three gods that are omnipotent, three gods omniscient, and three gods that are omnipresent. Now, I'll leave you to think about that and try to figure out why that's true, but it's an impossibility. And so when Jesus stepped down from the throne, what he did was to voluntarily subject himself to the Father. Now, he said in John 6, verse 38, For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. That's not a statement that the will of the Father and the will of of the Son are two different wills, but they are the same will. This this is a, a statement of submission. He was willing to step down in order to fulfill the Father's plans and purposes. And so he says, I voluntarily submit myself to the Father's will. And it's interesting that he says there, I came down from heaven to do that. And what that is is simply a reiteration of the fact that he is God. He had to come from heaven to do this. Now, he makes another statement about it in John 5, verse 30. He says, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. And so in the same vein that we talked about his subordination, we can also say that Christ endured deprivation. He says there, I can of mine own self do nothing. And that's an amazing statement because of the subordination, but also because of his deprivation. And what I mean here is that Christ limited his authority. He limited the divine attributes. 
He didn't cease to possess any of those divine attributes because he's God, but he willingly decided that he would not use all of those attributes. Now, for instance, uh, Jesus walked wherever he went. It's a long way from Galilee to Jerusalem, but Jesus walked that distance instead of instantly being there. I remember when we were riding in a boat on the, on the Sea of Galilee, we looked towards the south, and we've, oh, show us that picture there, Corey. We looked towards the south from the Sea of Galilee, and, and there's an opening in the mountains there called the Valley of the Dove. And going through that valley is the shortest distance from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And when Jesus went from Galilee towards Jerusalem, he walked through that valley, and he walked every step of the way. Maybe he rode a donkey sometimes, but he went all the way there. He didn't instantly be there, which he had the power to do. But instead, Jesus limited that ability, and he walked that entire distance. Jesus was also omniscient. That's an attribute that he never gave up. He never gave it up because he was God. But Jesus sometimes limited his omniscience. He said, I don't know the day of my return. He says, only the Father knows when it will be. Now, folks, we're at a loss to explain that statement. And I've read lots of commentary about it. I've seen a lot of people try to explain how that Jesus could say that I don't know the hour that I'm coming back. Only the Father knows that. And some say or explain it this way. Well, in his humanity, he didn't know that. Well, I can't imagine, though, that why in his humanity he just didn't turn over and ask his deity when it would be. I mean, I don't understand that. I don't know the answer to it. But somehow Jesus limited his omniscience. He endured deprivation. When he was taken in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember he said, don't you know that I can call 12 legions of angels to come and deliver me? He had all the power and the authority to do that, but he didn't do it. Now, through his life, he performed perhaps even thousands of miracles, yet when the time came for him to die, he limited the power of deliverance. He gave up position in order to come to the earth. The third thing we can say about him is that he endured separation. When Christ stepped off of that throne, he was separated from his Father. Now, no one knows how this can be, but the Godhead existed eternally in three, in a relationship, three separate relationships of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's always been that way. It's always been that distinction. And yet, when the plan of redemption was made, and when that was implemented, The Father didn't change form, and the Holy Spirit didn't change form. But the second person of the Godhead did. The Bible says he took on the form of a man, and so that separated him from his Father. Now, again, another thing, we don't understand how it can be, but in those three hours of darkness when Jesus hung on the cross, and there he actually made atonement for our sins, and he paid the penalty of our sins, he cried out to his Father, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Martin Luther, who is one of the greatest theologians of all time, was studying that passage, and when he came to it, he was totally perplexed by it. And he was reading it and reading it, and finally he exclaimed and threw up his hands. He walked away from his desk, and he said, How can this be? God forsaking God. How can that be? There's no way that we can explain it. But whatever it was, it was excruciating for him. And some people have even described that separation as being the worst thing that happened on the cross. When Jesus became sin for us, God could not look on his son any longer. 
And until satisfaction was made, until propitiation was made to satisfy the wrath of God, God forsook his son. And there was that unprecedented, unparalleled break. There was total separation. So Jesus demonstrated that he was willing to forgo that positional equality. He didn't count that as a cost that was too great to give up to accomplish the everlasting purposes of God. And what are God's everlasting, eternal purposes? Well, we know it well. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and then in the fullness of time, he came, and he was willing to endure the separation. The fourth thing that we can say about him is that he endured degradation. Philippians 2, verse 7, But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Now, we could take that part where it says that he was made a servant, and we could say he was made in the likeness of men, and that would be plenty for us to say that he was degraded. In heaven, he had the worship of angels. There was riches, and there was honor there. There was esteem unimaginable. When we get to our study of heaven in the book of Revelation, uh, I'll just have to show you how totally inadequate that anyone is to try to explain what heaven is like. Nobody knows about the glories of heaven. We can't explain it. And so for Jesus to step down from that to become a human was terribly degrading. The scriptures tell us that humans are defiled, our hearts are black. Isaiah said we're full of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. The uncleanness of our innermost being is described by Paul as being like an open tomb where there's rotting, stinking flesh that's inside. And so to say that Jesus became a human is enough to degrade him horribly. Now, thankfully, he did take on a human body without corruption, and that's why he was born of a virgin. But wouldn't you think that it would be terribly degrading to have all other humans to think about Jesus, that he was nothing more than human himself? When Jesus came, he didn't have anybody to worship him. I mean, he came in the likeness of men. He didn't come as a sophisticated man. He didn't come as a rich man. He didn't come as the upper crust or high society. Jesus came into a poor family, and he came as the lowliest of humans. The Bible says that he even became a servant. Well, that particular condescension of Christ uh, as the Messiah was one that was totally rejected by the Jews. I mean, they could not imagine that the Messiah would look like Jesus. And I don't mean in a physical appearance. I mean that he would look like him in the way that things that he did and the kind of life that he lived and the place and position that he had. They simply could not accept that Jesus was divine. And when he declared himself to be so, it only worsened their opinions of him. And so what did they say about him? Well, he's not only the lowest human being, he came in the form of a servant, but he went even lower still because they said he's a demon-possessed man. So they called him a blasphemer. The Scripture says in John chapter 10, there was a division, therefore, again among the Jews for these sayings. And many of them said, he hath a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? And so to step off the throne of glory to lower himself below the angel, as the book of Hebrews says, to lower himself to humanity and not a high society human, not a rich king, not not any of that, but the lowest type of human to become a slave and then to be brought even lower to have people say that he had a devil. I mean, how could we possibly gauge the, the 
the gap there? How, how, can we, how can we measure the distance from heaven that we can't understand to the distance to the very depths of hell that we can't understand? And yet Jesus lowered himself to that. This is what men thought of him. Now, do you see, if this weren't absolutely true, if this is not actually the way that happened, what, what Jesus actually did, we would accuse Paul of, of hyperbole. I mean, we'd say this is mind-boggling, insane hyperbole to, to use something like this and say this is what happened. He says in verse number 3, though, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. And he goes on right here and he says, this is what Christ did. This is the mind of Christ. And he couldn't have driven this, home, this point home any more graphically than to, than to talk about Christ and his humiliation. But he's not even finished here. It's not just about what he endured in his life. I mean, we could look at this and we could say, what a horrible life that it was. Look what he went through. He was treated horribly. Give this guy rest. I mean, that's enough. But there's even more here because also, fifthly, he endured humiliation. In the truest sense, all of this, of course, is humiliation for God. I mean, one inch below the throne of God would be humiliation for him. But Paul points out the greatest extreme of all by saying, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. And so when Jesus took the form of a man... When he was fashioned as a man, that means that he became subject to all things that men experience. It means that he went through the pains of men. He means he went through hunger. It means he went through thirst. He went through sorrow. Even sorrow to the point that when his good friend Lazarus died, the Bible says about Jesus that he wept. And becoming a man also meant that he was subject to death. He cannot die unless he becomes a man. God can't die. There's an interesting uh, thought that occurred to me as I was preparing this message. Jesus became fully human, but he never sinned. Now, we all know that, or at least we should know that about him. He couldn't be the Savior if he had sinned. The Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. And if Jesus never sinned, then the question would come to my mind, is it possible that Jesus could have died prior to the cross? Now, excluding all the plans and purposes of God, which we can only do because uh, we have speculation in mind here, the only reason we can do that, the question is, could Jesus have died a natural death? He has no sin. Could he die a natural death? Well, it seems to me that he could not because he has no sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, and so it wasn't until Christ was made sin, it wasn't until he bore our sins in his body that he could die. So he had no sin of his own. It's not until our sins are transferred to him that now Jesus becomes subject to death. So the wages of our sin become the death of Christ. Now, to me, that's kind of an interesting thought to think of it that way. And in all the years that I've studied this, unless I've overlooked it, I've never actually read anybody who actually put it that way. So I don't know, I could be totally off base. But that's what it seems to me. Now, as we think about Christ's humiliation, death itself is humiliating to God. The way to the cross was humiliating. The things that he went through to get there was humiliating. I mean, there were the insults, there was the beatings, there was the mockery, all that went along with that. And Jesus endured all of that because he bared everything that he was. He completely emptied himself. So there's nothing left in him. 
Now, you can empty yourself of everything, and you might not have anything left, but when you've done all of that, you still actually do have something left. You have your life that's left. But Jesus emptied himself as that as well. Of what, as well. He gave up his life. A life, then, is the ultimate sacrifice, and that's what Jesus used to demonstrate his great love for us. He says in John fifteen thirteen, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus could come and he could say, well, I gave up my throne for you. And he could say that I gave up riches for you. And whether he meant heavenly riches or if he means earthly riches, he could say, I gave up riches for you. He could say, I gave up my family for you. I gave up angelic adoration for you. But none of that has the impact of saying, I gave my life for you. That's the ultimate You see, emptying yourself all the way down to you have absolutely nothing does not mean that you've drained yourself dry. It's only until you've been drained to the last drop, and that's what happens in death. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He emptied himself. So there's subordination and deprivation, separation, degradation, humiliation. That's Christ pouring it all out until he was finally totally empty. But the descent of Christ is not complete, and we don't understand really how bad that it was yet until we understand the next point, and that is number three, that Jesus experienced the cross. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, it's not just that Christ experienced death, but this is the worst death possible. Crucifixion? Was, was intended to be a very strong deterrent to anybody who would break the Roman law. It was intended to be for spectators. You know, the Romans were as concerned about the spectators as they were about the person who died because they wanted to put that there as a deterrent. And so crucifixion was something that was long and agonizing. A person would hang there for days on a cross before they would die. Of course, Jesus is in control of his own life, and so the time span that he spends on the cross is his to control, not man's. And so when he was ready to give up his life completely, he gave it up. But Jesus hanging there on that cross was humiliating because this was a death for criminals. I mean, this is reserved for the worst of the worst. This is for people that are murderers. Certainly Jesus didn't kill anyone. In fact, you know the story how Pilate declared him to be innocent. The Jews had brought false charges against him. They said that he was a blasphemer. And that was the original charge, if you remember, when they brought Jesus up and, and, and they wanted to, uh, wanted to punish him. They said, he's guilty of blasphemy. Well, the Jews punished a person who's guilty of blasphemy by stoning. But, unfortunately for them, in one sense of the word, the, the Romans didn't allow the Jews to enforce capital punishment. And so Jesus was taken to be crucified. That's the Roman form of dying. Roman form, I should say, of punishment. They crucify them. So the Jews then were content that Jesus should experience the worst form of Roman punishment, and they wouldn't afford him, even if they could, the opportunity of letting him die like a Jew. And so the added humiliation for Christ is that he was so despised that he died under a Gentile form of punishment. And so here you have the holy God. He steps off the throne to become a man. 
He became the least esteemed of all men. He came as a servant. He went lower than that in that the God-man died. And he goes yet still lower. He goes to the worst humiliating death that you could die. And yet still lower than that because he goes to a form of Gentile death. That's the way they killed him. Now Paul says this is your example. And he says if the Son of God was willing to do this, if he would lower himself to this, is it too hard for you to lower yourself to serve another man? Folks, there's not any of us who've ever come within a millionth of a millimeter of lowering ourselves the way that the Son of God did. We can't lower ourselves the way that he did, but he was willing to do it to serve others. And you know, when we lower ourselves, we think, to serve others, really, that's nothing more than a lateral move. It's not a descending move. or It's not the descent of man. And if you look at that as a descending man, then you don't, as a descending thing, you don't see yourself as God sees you. I mean, if you think to, to serve another person is condescension for you, you don't see yourself as God sees you. We're nothing if not for Christ. So here we have Paul. He brings up the death of the cross. Now, it's not his purpose here to expound on the cross itself. I mean, the preaching of the cross is a, is a totally different subject and a major theme in its own right. And so it's not his purpose here to expound upon the cross. The text of the passage here is to speak about the condescension, the steep decline of Jesus Christ to become a man and to be the example that we should do likewise. So it's not my purpose to take it out of its context here and to expound upon the cross either. But I'm not going to leave you without saying something about the cross. There's three things, three important aspects I want to tell you about the cross. Each of these can be developed into multiples of sermons, but just briefly, why did Jesus experience the cross? Well, first of all, to remove our sins. The Scripture says in Isaiah 59, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Sin has to be dealt with. God has no fellowship with sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so all of us then are separated from God. And what Jesus did was to go to the cross to remove our sins. To remove the very thing that separates us from God. The second thing that he did, he went to the cross to satisfy God's justice. There is a penalty for breaking God's law. You see, it's not as simple as God saying, okay, you broke the law, I'll forgive you for that. I mean, that's all there is to it. You go on your merry way, I forgive you, you broke the law. God can't do that. God cannot forgive sin without satisfaction to his law. And the scripture says in Romans 7 verse 5, for when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Now there's the very reason why we die. Sin brings forth death. That's the penalty for breaking God's law. It's a curse that's been placed upon us. The curse of sin is that we must die. But the scripture says this in Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And so the reason that Jesus went to the cross was to satisfy God's justice. He took the penalty that we should have taken. Now thirdly then, Jesus experienced the cross, number three, to show God's love. Romans 5, verse 8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. God commendeth his love. That means that God showed it. God demonstrated. God displayed his love by Jesus going to the cross. But don't anyone be mistaken Be mistaken that it is the love of God that saves us. The love of God does not save us. Christ's death on the cross is what saves us. But it is the motivating factor. Love is the motivating factor of why Jesus went to the cross. You know the scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. So love is that motivation for the descent of the Son of God. Now Paul then brings up the cross because if God loved you so much that he would span that incomprehensible gulf to become for God to become a man and then to go further to the death of the cross, the argument is how can you do less than love your brother? If God was willing to do that for you in his love, how could you not be willing to do that for your brother? And Jesus said, this is how you know how all people will know that you're my disciples. That's what he said. By this, all men shall know that ye are my disciples if you have love one to another. So this is the place that Paul desires to bring us to in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. He gives us the greatest example of all. He can think of no greater. He's not exaggerating. Every bit of everything he says here is the actual truth. Everything that he says was done here was done for you. Almighty God did this. And he says, if God himself would become a servant, would become a man, would go to death, he would would esteem himself lower than another person, than a human being. Why aren't you willing to love your brother and to serve him? And when you understand what Paul is trying to get across in the book of Philippians, what does it do to, how do you get rid of the bickering and the fighting and the strife in a church? What do you do to bring peace, joy, and contentment to your life? You look at it the way that Paul looks at it, through the eyes of Jesus who came down from heaven and gave himself for us. This is his argument. He says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And friends, the next time that you open your mouth to complain about something, remember, Jesus went to the cross. Think about that the next time you want to complain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to speak your word tonight. What a marvelous scripture that we have, and we are so ashamed that we're inadequate to explain it the way it should be explained. Lord, just help us to get a better picture of who we are and who you are and what you were willing to do for us. And Lord, may we do the same for others. Lessen this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.